Welcome to episode 20 of Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And before we start, Nadia, high five to us for getting to episode 20. Yeah. (laughs) High five, Jade. I literally don't know how we've done it, although I'm kind of getting attached to this weird little room we found to record in. Who needs a recording studio, eh? Although, I'll tell you what we do need is a little boost from our listeners on iTunes so more people can find us and learn about appearance research. Right, and you can give us that boost by rating us and leaving us a review. Just go to our page on the iTunes store and click on ratings and reviews. The rest is up to you. I mean, you could give us five stars, write that we're tremendous and tell all your friends to do the same. I mean, up to you. <laughs> um, anyway, today in what is our 20th episode of Appearance Matters, the podcast, we are talking about breast cancer and body image. Right, and we're going to discuss how breast cancer can affect a woman's body image, why supporting women with their body image following breast cancer can be an important part of the recovery process, and of course, what work is going on at CAR in this area. Yes, and to help us, we'll be joined by CAR co-director Professor Diana Harcourt, research fellows Drs Nicole Paraskeva and Helena Lewis-Smith, and visiting professor and clinical psychologist Dr Alex Clark. And because we want you to hear as much as possible from the experts, Nadia and I will try to give an uncharacteristically brief introduction on the topic. Okay, so, as you may be aware, breast cancer is the most common type of cancer in women around the world. Globally, nearly 1.7 million new cases of breast cancer were diagnosed in 2012. According to Cancer Research UK, each year, over 55,000 people are diagnosed with disease in the UK which translates to roughly 150 people a day. Given these statistics, it might not be surprising that approximately 1 in 8 women in the UK, or just over 12%, are diagnosed with breast cancer at some point in their lives. Which is why nearly everyone knows someone who has been directly affected by the disease. Yeah, so whether it's a family member, a friend, a friend's family member, or a teacher, or a professor, or someone at work. Most women who get breast cancer are over the age of 50 and are postmenopausal. That said, while it's rare for breast cancer to be diagnosed under 35, the risk of developing the disease rises steeply from this point onwards. Right, around 20% of women diagnosed with breast cancer are under the age of 50. These women are more likely to have a family history of breast cancer whose family member has also been diagnosed under the age of 50. And when it comes to who we think is at risk of breast cancer, we typically think exclusively of women. However, men can also get breast cancer, albeit at a much lower prevalence rate. Right, male breast cancer accounts for only 1% of all breast cancer cases in the UK. However, outcomes of breast cancer tend to be worse for men than for women, as detection is often delayed, due in part to lower disease awareness. Moving on to outcomes, like the majority of cancers, breast cancer can be fatal, and today breast cancer is the most common cause of cancer-related death for women. However, thanks to significant medical advancements over the last 40 years, breast cancer mortality rates have, and continue to decrease. Today, in developed countries, survival rates are high. In countries like America, Australia, Japan and those across Western Europe, five-year survival rates often exceed 80%. In the UK, almost 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer survive the disease for 10 years or more. Although, as you might imagine, there are significant global health disparities in breast cancer survival rates. 
According to the World Health Organization, in middle-income countries, such as India, Kenya, Ukraine, survival rates fall to around 60%, and in low-income countries, such as Rwanda, Somalia, Nepal, survival rates can be as low as 40%. Right, and before we get to treatment and where body image fits into all of this, it's important to stress the necessity of early detection. Here and elsewhere in the world, there is a strong relationship between early detection and survival. If the cancer is caught early, when the tumour is small and isolated to just one part of the body, the outcome, or prognosis, is better. So, on to treatment. Treatment for breast cancer is largely dependent on the stage and grade of the cancer, which essentially refers to how big the cancer is and whether it's spread, and how fast it is spreading. Treatment can involve surgery, chemotherapy, radiotherapy, hormonal or biological therapy. Most people begin their breast cancer treatment with surgery, which, depending on the size or location of the cancer, can involve having a piece of the breast removed, this is called a lumpectomy, or the whole breast removed, so a mastectomy. Yeah. So, drug treatments like chemotherapy are used after surgery to reduce the risk of cancer returning, or in some cases, to reduce the size of the cancer before the surgery takes place. And this is where body image and appearance become salient. A significant consequence of breast cancer treatment is a change in one's appearance. Following the stress and trauma associated with the diagnosis and treatment, a different appearance can produce enduring adverse effects on women's body image and the psychological and physical health. Let's hear from our co-director, Professor Diana Harcourt, who leads the Breast Cancer Appearance-Related Research at CAR to tell us more about why appearance research matters for breast cancer survivors. Hi Di, thanks for joining us on Appearance Matters, the podcast. Hi Jade, thanks. Thank you, it's great having you. So let's just start us off. In what ways can appearance be affected by cancer and cancer treatment? It can be really wide ranging. More obvious things people may think of are like scarring after a mastectomy Mm -hmm. or a wide local excision, which is when the, the lump is removed from the breast, or hair loss during chemotherapy. But other changes can be weight changes, that could be weight gain or weight loss. People may get ridges in their nails during chemotherapy cycles. They may have ulcers in their mouths as their taste buds change. And potentially, um, when somebody's having radiotherapy treatment, the impact on the skin can almost appear like a burn whilst they're having the treatment as well. So, and what impact can changes to appearance have on an individual? Um, We know the psychological impact can be really significant for some people. Some people it's less so. They may be thinking that almost this is the price to pay for having effective treatment. So the appearance changes don't have such an importance to them, although it could still bother them. But for others it's really important and really distressing. And that's partly, I think, because changes to appearance are what convey your diagnosis to other people. So if people see somebody who's lost their hair, they may assume that they're having chemotherapy because they're having cancer. Whether or not that's true is a different matter. But those are the assumptions that people may make. I think one of the other issues is that nobody wants to be in this situation and although they may have choices to make about treatment, often their changes to appearance aren't changes that they've chosen to make. So they're dealing with changes to lots of aspects of their appearance at a really difficult time and it can be things like looking in the mirror and seeing that you look different, having to use a prosthesis, kind of can be daily reminders of the diagnosis as well. So there's a lot to deal with, and often people think that when treatment's finished, that's it. You know, great, good news, it's all behind you. But the appearance changes, if they're permanent ones, can be what the person's still dealing with. Mm. So they may sometimes feel that they've left to deal with that on their own. Perhaps they don't want to talk to other people about it or feel they can't because they don't want to appear 
worried about something like this, which they, they think they should be focusing on the diagnosis and being very grateful that the treatments worked, which of course they are, mm. but it's still absolutely okay to be bothered by the fact that you look different to how you did before all this happened. So how might uh, this impact on someone's relationships with others then? It's a good point. It's an important issue, I think, because for some people, if they're in a relationship before this happens, they may have concerns that is their partner going to find them less attractive as a result of their treatment, mm. whether or not that's true. Again, that's, you know, we're not to say, but that's, you know, that's what they could be believing, if you like. If people who aren't in a relationship beforehand, then they have the issue of, well, if they start a new relationship, at what point do I tell somebody about my diagnosis and at what point are they going to know that perhaps I wear a prosthesis or I've got scarring, I've had reconstruction, at what point do they bring those issues up? And we know that diagnosis and the appearance changes can impact on um, women's feelings of femininity and attractiveness, so it can have a really significant impact in relation to intimate relationships. Mm can also have an impact on their relationships with children or grandchildren if they're concerned that they're going to react to them differently because they look different. And they can, women can have real concerns about how they're going to discuss those kind of issues and how children are going to react. Yeah, that's really insightful. So um, are certain individuals at increased risk for experiencing appearance-related distress? Not in t- I don't think so. Not in terms of sort of demographic details, for example. So it can be sometimes easy to assume that hair loss during chemotherapy, for example, wouldn't be such an issue for men because they've lost, you know, they may lose their hair mm. naturally anyway. But there is some research that's showing that, you know, men, they haven't chosen to go through this. So hair loss for men can be as devastating as it is for women because it's just a reminder that some men do have um, breast cancer as well as women. Yeah. Age, factors like that, it'll come down to the kind of the importance that people place on appearance, I think, you know, how important it was to them beforehand. And all the factors that come through in the body image research about sort of things like internalisation and comparisons, I think they all play a part as well. Brilliant. So um, you mentioned that some people cope effectively with changes caused by cancer and cancer treatment. So why, why would you say this is? I think it could be a number of factors. It may be because they've got the kind of resources to help them manage it well. So if they've got supportive family and friends, we know that can make a big difference. Mm. Depending on the treatment options they've been offered and how well they're supported by the health professional team, when it comes to making choices about treatment, that can make a difference. But also the kind of psychosocial factors, things such as importance that they're placing on appearance beforehand, the extent to which they think other people are judging them or making assumptions about them because of how they now look. And I think all those come into making the difference between why some people seem to go through this really difficult situation and seem to be managing it really well and others really struggle. But I think what we also need to remember is that it's not constant. Some people may be seen to be managing very well and then something can happen, you can have a hiccup or you can still have a bad day. Mm. And I remember in some of the studies that we've done, women have said, you know, I may be out and about, that's because it's a good day. Yeah. On a bad day, people don't see me because I'm at home, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going through a bad time, yeah. I'm not publicly visible, so I'm keeping my appearance changes to myself on those situations. That's great, so thank you Di for coming along, it's great hearing from you. You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Excellent. Let's move on and let's hear from our visiting professor and clinical psychologist, Dr Alex Clark, who's been on the podcast a couple of times before. Mm-hmm, indeed. 
Hi Alex, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hello. Um, we're talking today about breast cancer and appearance and we're really eager to hear your clinical perspective on the topic. So to start off with, what sort of appearance issues affected the patients that you saw in your role with the clinical psychologist at the Royal Free? Well, the first thing to say is that breast cancer is such a common form of cancer that it affects people of all different ages and, of course, both sexes, which we sometimes forget. So the first important thing to remember is that we're talking about lots of different people, lots of individual differences. And I would say that the first um, important thing was the chance to sit and give people space and, and listen to them. Um, and as far as appearance is concerned, uh, it may be for people the first time that they've really considered their appearance in terms of its, the way in which it contributes to their whole self-concept and self-esteem. And of course, people will vary widely. So for some people, appearance is really not a big deal. It's something we all manage and modify to some extent. To other people, at the end of a different continuum, it, it's a very important part of their self-esteem and well-being. And these, the amount that people invest in their appearance will change the impact that cancer has for them. So it's, it's often the case that people are worried about their diagnosis and the treatment and how that's going to impact on their day-to-day -day life and their life expectancy and so on. For some people, appearance may be the most important thing, even given that background, and that's sometimes quite a challenge for other health professionals to understand. Uh, but people worry a lot about hair loss, for example, as just, as just uh, one aspect of treatment. And really, it's as a clinical psychologist, you're just really getting to grips with this, trying to understand what's important for people and therefore just what it is that you might be able to offer them. OK, so that kind of leads nicely onto the next question um, that I'm thinking of is how, as a clinical psychologist, are you able to help people in their recovery and maybe acceptance with naughty appearance? Well, it's first of all, it's there is providing this non-judgmental space for people really to talk about issues. It can be sometimes difficult for people to talk about issues of, for example, femininity and intimacy. It, it's those are things that often come up, particularly if you think that uh, if someone's in a relationship and very close to someone, then that's one set of issues. But if people are single or contemplating a new relationship, when do they raise issues about appearance? Do they do it right at the start? Do they do them only when it becomes clear that an, an intimate relationship's on the cards? And how do they do it when they do it? Those aren't automatic things. And again, there are lots of individual differences. And all of this was within a, a broader um, context of thinking about getting back to work, supporting children, maintaining all the things that are important to people as an individual, but doing so sometimes when your weight has changed, when you have it to choose a different set of clothes to wear. Um, all of those things actually are things that perhaps it's difficult to talk to other people about um, and where we can offer help as a psychologist with some ideas about just what's helped other people and what strategies they might use. Mm -hmm. That's really great. So how do you think clinicians and researchers can best support breast cancer patients affected by appearance-related issues in the future? 
I think it's important to, first of all, recognise the individual way in which people respond. So everybody's different, as I've said. I think the typical role of psychology and clinicians has been to uh, move or, or to offer services rather towards, if you like, the mid and ongoing and, and follow-up parts of treatment. I think we're much more aware now of psychology's role in preparation for treatment and in thinking through decision-making. So if you think about it, people are often on the, quite a tight time frame from diagnosis to making decisions about treatment, and that's a good thing, of course, that you don't want to be hanging around and worrying, but you're making decisions about the original treatment, about how you're going to manage chemotherapy, radiotherapy sometimes, about what stage you have mastectomy, what surgery you're going to have. Um, and then for breast cancer patients, very commonly there's a question of breast reconstruction. And that's something that we've, we've discovered is something with still very variable outcomes in terms of women's satisfaction with the outcome. And I'm, for some people, not even realising that that's an optional part of care, not part of the treatment. So you're going to have immediate reconstruction. Are you going to have delayed reconstruction? Are you going to have reconstruction at all? What are the things that, for you, are the important outcomes that you're trying to achieve through reconstruction? To what extent are those possible through surgery? Are they possible other ways? Um, and how are you going to make a decision about that? So research that we're pursuing at the moment here at UWE is looking at support for that decision-making process through our Pegasus intervention, which we are currently halfway through a four-year study looking to see how that can help. So to answer your question, we see a role for psychologists right throughout the pathway through the decision-making through the support during the process of care um, and in achieving the best kind of outcomes in the rehabilitation phase post-operatively. That's great and that's really interesting to think about um, support at the right at the beginning because mm -hmm. I, can, I can see how the focus is very much in the, in the latter end of that pathway. So if there was one change you could make to the provision of care or support for breast cancer patients, what would it be? So the, the, I'm going to cheat and say that there are two things. So one would be to reiterate what I've just said about our Pegasus intervention and providing um, the option of psychological input. Not everybody wants it, of course, but to offer it for breast cancer patients right from the start, from diagnosis, right through the decision-making phase and on through the provision of care and right the way through to rehabilitation. Um, but the other important thing is standardisation of care. So one thing that we've observed, both from my practice at the Royal Free and working with other units now, is just how variable the options are and the treatments are across the UK. And I think this is true for a lot of issues within the health service just at the moment with resourcing issues, but um, undoubtedly, there are much better options for some people in some parts of the country than there are in the others, and it would be nice to see some unity of purpose and care provision across the board. Mm, I think that's a really good point to end on. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. Pleasure. Well, I don't know about you, Joe, but I feel like I'm learning so much in this episode. Mm, definitely. 
Um, let's now turn to research fellow Dr. Nicole Powers-Giever to find out more about the Pegasus project Alex mentioned. Hi Nicole, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, it's great to be back. Cool, so tell me about the work you're doing related to breast cancer. The work that I'm currently doing focuses on decision making about breast reconstruction. So just to provide some background, we know from research that some women find it very difficult to make a decision about breast reconstruction, particularly at a time when they've just been diagnosed with cancer and they have lots of things going on in their mind. So decision-making about breast reconstruction is very complex. There are so many choices regarding the type and timing of surgery, and the best option for each woman will depend on her own personal situation and individual needs. Mm -hmm. Alex Clark said about that. Yeah, yeah, it's a really important point because women's decision is uh, what we call preference-sensitive because the right choice depends on individuals' personal preferences rather than sort of generic treatment factors like age So although the aim of breast reconstruction is to improve women's quality of life and appearance concerns, uh, results from the National Mastectomy and Breast Reconstruction Audit, uh, which was conducted in 2011, found concerning levels of dissatisfaction with surgical outcome. And further studies have also reported that women can feel regret about the decision to have breast reconstruction, and often women who are dissatisfied with their outcome may seek further corrective surgery, which obviously has implications for you know, healthcare resources and can cause further distress for patients. And patients may also maintain avoidance behaviours, so in terms of intimacy or the clothing choices that they choose, the things that breast reconstruction was really intended to reduce. Why, why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, a key reason for patient dissatisfaction and regret really involves um, unrealistic and therefore unmet expectations. Therefore, clarifying patients' expectations, their preferences and values about breast reconstruction is absolutely crucial. So in line with this, uh, Professor Diana Harcourt and Alex Clark developed the Pegasus intervention, which specifically helps patients and health professionals clarify each woman's motivations and expectations for breast reconstruction. So, to finally answer your question, the work that I'm doing is evaluating the impact of the Pegasus intervention for women who are contemplating breast reconstruction. Okay, so just remind me, what does Pegasus stand for? Oh yeah, good question. So, a Pegasus stands for Patients, Expectations and Goals, Assisting Shared Understanding of Surgery. (laughs) Okay, got it. (laughs) Um, Okay, and then so can you tell me a little bit about what's involved in the Pegasus intervention? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, Pegasus is delivered to women who are eligible for breast reconstruction and who already know what their options are because in some instances uh, their physique or their health status might mean that certain procedures are inappropriate. So in comparison to a purely uh, paper-based intervention, Pegasus involves the patient meeting a Pegasus coach. And so this is a specialist nurse, a psychologist or a surgeon who's trained in its use. During this meeting, the coach elicits and records on a Pegasus sheet the patient's individual breast reconstruction goals, what would indicate a successful outcome and the importance of each goal. The intervention very much focuses on patient's surgical goals, so things such as cup size, symmetry and size, all the physical changes that are achieved through surgery, but also the patient's lifestyle and psychosocial goals such as intimacy, body image and confidence, the things that the patient anticipates following breast reconstruction. The patient then takes the completed Pegasus sheet into the surgical consultation 
and this allows the surgeon to decide the extent to which the patient's goals are realistic and if necessary take steps to address unrealistic expectations so this might mean explaining in more detail the likely outcomes or showing additional photographs of patients pre and post surgery. Okay so let me see if I've got this right. Pegasus aims to help women who are eligible for breast reconstruction express what they want, what's important to them while assisting health professionals understand what their patient preferences are. Exactly, whilst providing a compassionate platform for modifying and managing any unrealistic expectations. And in fact, um, a feasibility study, which was conducted a few years ago, found exactly that, that Pegasus was a well-accepted intervention that helped women express what they want and assisted health professionals to understand their patients' preferences for breast reconstruction. Excellent. So let's just finish up by you telling me what's happening now with Pegasus. Yeah, so we're absolutely delighted to get some funding from Breast Cancer Now to conduct a much larger scale multi-site trial examining whether Pegasus is effective in terms of patient reported outcome measures. So looking at things like patient satisfaction. The aim of this current study is to see if using Pegasus offers benefits over usual care. So we're currently halfway through this trial and we would love to share the results with you in a future podcast. That'll be awesome. Can't wait. Okay, thanks, Nicole. Thanks. Great. And time now for our final guest on this episode, Research Fellow Dr Helena Lewis-Smith. Hi, Helena. Thanks for joining us on this episode. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. So I'll start off with... um, Your research is currently focused on providing body image support for women following treatment. So why is support so important even following treatment then? Well, because during the whole treatment process, women will receive um, multiple different types of treatment. So as Di's already said, um, they could have chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy and hormonal treatment. And all of these different treatments are associated with different changes to the body and appearance. And some of these might be quite short term. So, for example, hair loss, hair does grow back. However, it can grow back completely differently, a different colour, different texture. Um, And some of these are quite permanent or could be temporary, depending on whether that woman chooses to have reconstruction or um, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So for these women, once they finish treatment, they're kind of required to to get used to all these different changes to their appearance and try to integrate that back into their, their own body image. And often this is the time when women can struggle because they've dealt with the treatment process and they have less contact with health professionals and they're kind of expected by people around them to get back to normal. Mm. And women who've had breast cancer often say they never feel like they're going to go back to normal. They, they want their old lives back, but they're not going to get them back. And they feel a lot of pressure from people around them to you know, get back on with life. So it can be a real struggle whilst they're trying to do this and trying to adapt to life following treatment to come to terms um, with their appearance, which is quite different to how it was before they started treatment. So that's why it's so important that women are given support at this point to get used to the changes that have occurred to their appearance. That makes complete sense. Obviously, like you say, it's a lot to adapt to. I think women, yeah, women often say that um, whilst on the outside they, they look okay and people think that they're kind of, you know, they're getting back to normal, they're fine. Mm. Actually, every time they get out of the shower, for example, and they look at themselves in the mirror, every time they wash their hair, they feel really sad and they're still mourning the, you know, the loss of their breasts, the loss of their hair. Um, they see um, marks left from radiotherapy and that's really upsetting. 
brittle nails, their eyelashes and eyebrows are still growing back. And so whilst people might think they're okay, actually they, they do really, really struggle. And, and like Di said previously, um, these changes can have a knock-on impact on other parts of their life. So for example, intimacy can be affected with a partner because that woman is struggling to come to terms with her altered appearance. Um, and so how would she feel comfortable to being intimate with her partner if she's not comfortable herself? And then obviously there's a big impact on how the partner feels because the partner wants to make sure that she's okay and you know wants to be as supportive as possible. And you know, and it can be a really diff- difficult time for not only the individual but the partner, but but everybody around them who want to be accommodating and understanding and help them, you know, move on after cancer. But actually, it's a real struggle when these women are having to live with these ch- these multiple changes all over their all over their body. Of course. So, um, what type of support is currently available for these women? Well, there is um, different types of support available. So um, women can go along to, for example, makeup workshops that will teach them, you know, how to draw on their eyebrows um, and also generally how to do their makeup, how to contour, um, you know, their their foundation, whatever it may be. And they can also go to workshops that um, that help them learn how to put on headscarves and how to put on their wigs and how to look after their wigs, um, which are fantastic and are actually particularly helpful during treatment. Mm. However, there seems to be less um less things out there which which provide psychological support for women so whilst we know there are things being developed by many researchers all over the UK and the world right now you know they're still in the development process and they haven't been evaluated enough to the point that we know that they are effective and they are beneficial and I think whilst it's really fantastic that women can go to makeup workshops and um you know learn how to camouflage those aspects of their appearance to actually help them feel more normal and you know so that they don't have people staring at them in the street you know there's women who will have their hair grow back and will have their eyebrows grow back but they're still feeling unhappy about their appearance so unfortunately you know those things alone won't help and that's why it's really really important that we also provide women with psychological support as well and of course yeah like you say it's really important that these interventions are really evaluated so that we can see that they are effective. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Because otherwise, you know, we don't know whether they're actually going to help women and they, they cost a lot of money as well. And we want to make sure that we're doing the job right and that, you know, women do feel better and more accepting of their appearance once they've attended, you know, a support group or a programme or a makeup workshop. We want to make sure that it is truly having a positive impact on their life. Of course. So one intervention that is currently being evaluated is your intervention. So um, you could tell us a bit more about how your intervention has been developed. Well, um, I started looking at this many, many years ago in my PhD. Um, what I found was that, like we've just said, whilst there are interventions out there and there are b- interventions currently being developed, there's not many that have a really strong evidence base currently. Mm-hmm. However, in the body image um, stream, there's been several interventions that have been developed for women in midlife. And obviously women who tend to receive a diagnosis of breast cancer are in midlife. And one intervention in particular that has received a great deal of support is um, a sociocultural intervention that was developed by Susan Paxton, Shah McLean and Eleanor Werther. I'm over in Australia. And this was an intervention developed for women in midlife who um, experienced body dissatisfaction but also disordered eating. And it was found to be very effective in multiple um, measures of body image and associated measures. 
And what I found after doing this kind of scouring the literature to see what was available, um, I conducted a study where I was interested in looking at do some of the influences that we talk about affecting, you know, children, young people and the general public, such as pressure from the media to look a certain way, um, engaging in comparisons with other people. I was interested in seeing whether those influences were also relevant to women who have breast cancer. Mm. Um, and what I found was that they were. And actually, women who have breast cancer are particularly vulnerable to experiencing media, experiencing pressure, sorry, from the media. And there's actually a big pressure for them to conform to the appearance ideals that, you know, unfortunately we're all bombarded with every day. Yeah. And so what's really interesting actually with that group of women is that whilst we know women in midlife are you know, getting older and their appearance is changing as expected mm-hmm. and they're looking more and more and more dissimilar to the models that we see walking on the catwalk and we see in the magazines on television. For women who've had breast cancer, they, they're losing their breasts, they're losing their hair and they're actually being pushed even further away from this beauty ideal that we see every single day. So actually it's not very surprising that these women feel this pressure and actually this could be contributing to why they're feeling you know, quite bad about their appearance following treatment. So based on that research, it then kind of informed the adaptation of that that intervention, which was developed by you know our colleagues in Australia, and that's where that's where the intervention came from, and then we adapted it to make it more more applicable to women who've had breast cancer. Sounds like a great um, intervention, really fascinating research. So, what stage of evaluation are you currently at then, and um, what are the next stages? Uh, well, I'm currently at the, I'm co- conducting the feasibility study. So um, when I adapted the intervention, I did an acceptability study with women who've had breast cancer and health professionals. And they they gave their feedback on the intervention in its, you know, adapted form and said what should be changed further, what worked, what didn't work, etc. And so based on their really, really helpful feedback, um, I then adapted the intervention further to make it more appropriate. So, for example, it's important to mention that whilst this intervention obviously covers things which would be applicable to women whether they've had breast cancer or not, such as, you know, dealing with sociocultural pressures, engaging in body comparisons, looking at how we can use relaxation to help to help us improve our body image and focusing on the functionality of our bodies as opposed to how they look. It was also really important to add topics which are very important for women who have breast cancer, one of which is intimacy. So like, you know, I briefly touched on this being said um, before in this episode, this is an area which is particularly difficult for women and they really, really struggle with. So the acceptability study told us, you know, we really need to make sure we do this topic justice and that women are provided with support to deal with those situations and their relationships more generally. So following that study, we then um, have now moved on to the feasibility study. So what are you currently evaluating in regards to your feasibility? So now we've adapted the intervention again. Um, We're now actually running women through the programme. So we've had 20 women who have had treatment for breast cancer attend the programme. And the programme has been run by a clinical psychologist and also a peer. Um, And just to clarify, a peer is somebody who's also had breast cancer themselves. And so they've developed, um, they've been delivering seven sessions using CBT strategies two groups of women for seven weeks and we've just finished a few weeks ago we've just finished um <laughs> running the groups so now we're we're just evaluating you know the feasibility the acceptability that's yeah that's what we're doing at the moment and have you currently had any kind of feedback from the women that have taken part uh well so far the feedback's really really positive women have, have really felt quite liberated and empowered i think from coming to the group and they really learned to appreciate their bodies beyond how they look and and what we know so far from the little analysis we've done um, is that we think that in terms of body appreciation, um, that's definitely improving, which is fantastic. And I think 
also they feel like they're better equipped with the skills to deal with you know for example the impact on their relationships on how to have discussions with their partner how to tell friends and family about the way they're feeling about their their altered appearance um, and they've also learned how to just be a bit more self-compassionate and I think that must be quite hard for women who've obviously gone through quite an ordeal that treatment is and then are required to get back to normal life and be a good mum and you know, I think they find it really hard to actually look after themselves. So women have also said that now they really are appreciating the importance of engaging in self-care, which is fantastic. And yeah, so, so far what we know is that we do think the programme has um, has some potential to really benefit these women. That's really good to hear. And it seems like a very useful and timely intervention um, for the women that has received great feedback. Yeah, well, let's hope so. <laughs> Hopefully, if um, we'll see what we find from this study, and if we find that it does show potential and it is feasible and it is acceptable, um, hopefully we can go on to conduct a pilot study, so hopefully more more women to take part. But so far, whilst it's quite a lengthy process, as is the case with when you're developing an intervention or an adapting an intervention in this case, the feedback at every stage has been really, really positive and really helpful in modifying this intervention and making it as relevant and as helpful as possible as we can for this group of women. Sounds great. Thank you very much, Helen. It's great having you. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Helena Lewis-Smith and our final guest for this episode. We were truly spoiled today by having four experts discuss the topic of breast cancer and body image, weren't we, Nadia? Absolutely. And so what was your key takeaway point? Oh, gosh, put me on the spot, Jade. Um, Two key points. One for me was how people respond to changes in appearance following breast cancer is completely individual and um, that came up uh, with with Alex and with Nicole mm. and then when it comes to breast reconstruction the importance of really having clear expectations how about you Jade what are your big takeaways um I really liked the idea that you know that a number of factors can influence the outcomes of someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer and how they think and feel about their body image Now, before we end this episode, we have some very important information to share with you. So listen up. (laughs) Yeah. So as some of you might know, our centre's international multidisciplinary conference, Appearance Matters 8, is taking place next year in Bath. From June 12th to the 14th. And both the registration for the conference and abstract submission are now live. The scientific committee are calling for abstracts for posters and paper presentations on all topics related to appearance research and the deadline for all abstracts is the 1st of November. So you don't have a ton of time to hang about on this one. Seriously, this conference is going to be A++ and if you care about top quality research and practice related to appearance, body image, visible difference, cosmetic surgery, eating disorder prevention, the role of social media, education, policy... You get the gist. Mm -hmm. This is a conference for you. Also, Bath is actually one of the prettiest cities in the UK. Yeah, and if you don't believe us, a two-second Google image search will verify this. Plus, UNESCO thinks so too, because the whole city is classified as a UNESCO heritage site. And uh, you live in Bath, don't you, Nadia? Tell us what's good. (laughs) Uh, Oh my goodness, I don't know where to start. So, for context, I am a London girl. I didn't think I'd ever love another city as much as I do London, but I've lived in Bath since 2010, barring a couple of years when I was in the States for grad school. But it looks like I'm going to be in Bath to stay for some time. Good. (laughs) Um, So, as we've said, Bath is very aesthetically pleasing, which is nice. Think Jane Austen, um, the buildings are all Georgian, and there's lots of beautiful parks and green space. 
bath is also a very historical city. There's the Roman baths, which you can go and visit, and then there's the Natural Thermos Bar, which has a rooftop pool. Crucial information. Mm. So um, <laughs> that's a favourite. Uh, what else to say? It's pretty decent for shopping, and there's some nice bars and restaurants around. I love that I can walk everywhere. And then, I guess, if you want a bit more action, you can get to Bristol in 15 minutes on the train, or to London in an hour and a half going the other way. So, yeah, it's a pretty great city. Ooh. Uh, Nadia, do you work for the Bath Tourist Board by any chance? <laughs> yeah, they should pay me, right? <laughs> so, the conference itself takes place in the famous Georgian Assembly Rooms, which is stunning, as is the rest of Bath. And did you know we are having a private evening drinks reception at the Roman Baths and a conference dinner in the pump room? Uh, I know, it's super fancy. I can't wait. And if that's not all enough, we have three stellar keynote speakers lined up for the conference. In no particular order, we'll be joined by Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner from the University of Minnesota, a veritable trailblazer in eating disorder prevention and body dissatisfaction research. We will also be joined by Dr James Partridge OBE, the founder of the leading UK charity for people living with an altered appearance called Changing Faces. James is a true friend of the centre and has been working with CAR since it began. Our third keynote is Professor Rebecca Poole from the University of Connecticut and Deputy Director of the world-renowned Rudd Centre for Food Policy and Advocacy. Dr Rebecca Poole leads research and policy efforts aimed at reducing weight-based discrimination, stigma and victimisation. What a lineup! We are hoping we will be able to speak to each of our keynotes on the podcast in the run-up to the conference, so be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss anything. Yes, and FYI, for a bit of history on the Appearance Matters conference series, go back and have a listen to episode two. There's also an episode with conference delegates talking about their highlights from our 2016 conference, Appearance Matters 7. Yeah, which is worth a listen to get a taste of what to expect. Great, and if you have any questions about the conference or the podcast, our Twitter handle is at car underscore UWE, or you can email us at car at uwe.ac.uk. And join us next time when we'll be talking about bariatric surgery, weight stigma and body image. And remember to get a move on with those abstracts. The deadline is November 1st. Wait, what's the deadline, Jade? November 1st. When? November 1st. (laughs) (laughs) Got it.